Welcome as we spend some time together in quiet meditation as we sit at the foot of Christ's cross on this Good Friday afternoon. We're going to have a series of readings and reflections upon those readings and then invite you to spend some time uh, in quiet thought uh, and meditation, perhaps in prayer, on those readings and reflections after each reflection. What you might want to do is to put uh, the service on pause after each reflection so that you can take as long uh, or as short a time as you wish in your own personal thoughts. Let's open with prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you humbled yourself in taking the form of a servant and in obedience died on the cross for our salvation. Give us the mind to follow you and to proclaim you as Lord and King to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Our first reading is Psalm 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully, because the enemy oppresses me. As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? I will put my hope in him, for I will praise him, my saviour and my God. It seems to be that whenever there is a disaster, natural or man-made, or when something unexpected and painful occurs, those who do not believe are prone to ask the question, 
If there were a God, where was he when this happened? Or how could a so-called loving and benevolent God allow such an event to happen? The hope and expectation that they lay on their vision of who or what God is is usually measured by how good life is. It is only through blessings, riches, happiness can they believe that a God can truly exist. Like a kindly old grandfather, they picture themselves sitting on God's knee being patted on the head, handed a favourite sweet and told there's nothing to worry about, that all will be well in this world and to the next. Adversity does not fit into the agenda. Strangely enough, though, how often do we hear those same people cry out in their own personal time of need for the intervention of the God who they have hitherto dismissed or scorned? Where is your God now turns to, where are you, God, when I want you, when I need you in my life? But this is not them putting their hope in God, but rather a hopeful cry for help in the moment of their darkest need. Hope in God comes from our desire to give him all that we have, all that we are, all that we do, in the good times as well as in the bad. The psalmist records how his soul thirsts for God, for the living God, recognising that for him, God is a living God to whom in the past he has proclaimed with shouts of joy and thanksgiving amongst the festive throng. And as he rebukes himself for feeling so downcast and for questioning where God is in his time of mourning, he reminds himself that he is to put his hope in God, for he will yet praise him, his Saviour and his God. How wonderful it is to know his love for me so free and sure, but yet more wonderful to see my love for him so faint and poor. And yet I want to love you, Lord. O oh, teach me how to grow in grace, that I may love you more and more until I see your face. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 26 and it's verses 69 to 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. When he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock 
crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. So replied Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms in 1521, when asked if he wished to defend his books or to retract anything in them. Faced with the threat of excommunication or possibly worse, Luther stands firm in his belief and in his conviction of the scriptures. Contrast that with the denial of Jesus by Peter in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas. Questioned by others who were standing or serving there, Peter three times denies following or even knowing Jesus. The denials became stronger and more emphatic as they went along, with Peter eventually cursing and swearing oaths to his words. How easy it is for us to sit here and pass judgment on Peter, to tut at his seeming weakness, to wonder at his lack of conviction, to ridicule his willingness to save his own reputation and possibly his life by denying his knowledge of Jesus and disowning Jesus in his time of need. Only a short while before, Peter had told Jesus that he would follow him and lay down his life for him, to which our Lord had responded by warning Peter that before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And as predicted, this is precisely what Peter did. And as soon as he remembered the words Jesus had spoken, Peter was convicted and he went outside and wept bitterly. How desolate and totally alone Peter must have felt at that moment. The bravado of his earlier profession of loyalty to Jesus had disappeared, and instead he's weeping in his grief as he realises the enormity of what he's done, of his betrayal of the man he had declared his friend and Lord, and for whom he had declared he would go anywhere and do anything. And yet, only a few days later, after this denial, on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, the risen Lord Jesus reinstates Peter, the rock on whom Jesus would build his church. Even for those who deny the Lord, there is the hope and promise of forgiveness and restoration to Christ's side if we acknowledge our shortcoming and recognise our error. We are never too far removed from the love, forgiveness and grace of God to receive the hope that is the promise of new life, a new start, a new relationship with God through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Christ Jesus. So when we are faced with the question of knowing or denying Christ, will we stand like Luther or fall like Peter. Whichever way we go, there is the hope 
that we will be forgiven for taking the wrong path. And like Luther and Peter, we will be the rock upon which the Church of Christ is built, firm and rooted in him. Our next reading is from Matthew 27 and it's verses 11 to 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the festival the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Jesu Barabbas, so after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Jesu Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he realised that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. It's not my problem. That isn't in my job description. I wasn't asked to do it, and so I didn't. Well, it's not my fault. I didn't know you should have warned me. You can't blame me, you know. I have my rights. They did it, not me. How often have we tried to walk away from the consequences of our actions, saying it's not our fault, trying to pin the blame onto someone or something else. The dog ate my homework or the computer crashed and I lost the file. 
In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're reminded that we are all responsible for the welfare of those around us. No one is above our help. We should be ready to come to the aid of anyone, even if they are our enemy. Pilate, although a very powerful and important ruler, the sole authority to the execution of a criminal, was also an extremely frightened man. Pilate was sitting on a powder keg that was likely to go off at any time, finding himself caught between the unforgiving empire of Rome and the religious scheming of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. He maintained peace through brute force and subtle negotiation, but was aware that his precarious position depended on keeping Rome sweet and tolerating the demands of Caiaphas the high priest and the other leaders of the Sanhedrin, who liked to rule their own people in their own way, and who would not think twice about making accusations against Pilate to Rome. Pilate was afraid of the Sanhedrin and a possible riot if he did not give way to their demands that Jesus be treated as a common criminal and crucified as a blasphemer and a usurper to their authority. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Even his own wife had warned him not to have anything to do with Jesus. Yet he gave in to the crowd and had Jesus taken away and crucified. The crowd who had a few days earlier hailed Jesus as their king as he entered Jerusalem now bade at Pilate for Jesus' blood, a crowd that Pilate was too afraid to stand up to or to ignore. He allows himself to be swept along by popular opinion rather than relying on his own instincts to let an innocent man go. What is popular is not always right, and what is right is not always popular. Pilate sacrifices an innocent man to avoid problems for himself. But in an attempt to distance himself from the decision that he had been forced to make, he washes his hands in front of the crowd as a symbol of ridding himself of the blood that was now firmly on his hands. Disobeying God to go along with the crowd, to fit in with everyone else, to rid oneself of the responsibility of making a decision for ourselves or making a stand is a serious matter. And as Christians, we must be prepared to take a stand for God's laws and for living the life that he has called each one of us to. This next reading is from Luke chapter 23 and it's verses 32 to 43. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, 
they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the, the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The question was asked as to why God chose to allow two other men to be crucified with Jesus that day. Why wasn't the historical spotlight, as it were, put on Christ alone? Back came the answer. Actually, I think what is interesting is not that the two thieves were there, but that God chose to record that particular detail. Lots of stuff was going on that day which was never mentioned in any of the New Testament accounts. If the thieves were not important, they could have hung there beside Jesus in anonymity. They were written into scripture for a reason. Crucifixion was prescribed only to the lowest level of criminals and to slaves, rarely Roman citizens. Beyond being a slow and painful death, crucifixion was a humiliating death. Jesus identified with the lowest stratum of society. He accepted, even embraced, the most degrading death. He allowed himself to be treated as a common low-life criminal. God didn't plan any special treatment for him. It was, in fact, exactly the opposite. The fact that there were two others with him proves the point. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. So wrote Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 12. It is popularly quoted that Jesus only extended love and forgiveness to the so-called good thief. Actually, his love and forgiveness were there for the other thief as well, since Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. The difference is that one chose not to receive it. 
Jesus gave us a key to understanding grace when he said to the good thief, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Scripture teaches us that we are saved by grace and not by works, and this is a perfect example of that. There was no time left for the thief to do anything in the way of making up for his sins or turning his life around. Yet Jesus told him today he would be with him in paradise. It was the thief's heart condition that gave him instant access to eternity in heaven. Just look at the three crosses. Jesus is in the middle, at the very centre of God's plan for redemption. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But what is speaking out from either side of him? On the one side is faith, the other unbelief. On the one side is humility, on the other is arrogance. Profanity speaks out of one side and reverence and awe speaks out of the other. These two voices continue to speak from either side of the cross today. The world has always been divided and always will be divided, but with Christ at the centre. Maybe God placed a man on each side of Jesus for this reason. One is the voice of the kingdom of this world and the other is the voice of the kingdom of God. The answer ended with a question of its own. Which of these two speaks for you? The next reading is from Mark chapter 15 and it's verses 33 to 41. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, 
and of Jose and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. If this description of life by Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth is true, then all that we have read, heard and contemplated this afternoon counts for nothing. Life is but a temporary thing, briefly played upon the world stage before being heard no more. An idiot's tale signifying nothing. But if the events that we have been reminded of this afternoon are real, then surely that signifies that life is not nothing. It is in fact everything. The life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ is either an idiot's tale counting for nothing, or it is the most glorious news told by the wise, full of sound and fury, signifying everything. Life is no longer temporary, briefly played, but rather it is eternal to those who will but accept that same offer that was made to the criminals who hung on either side of Christ's cross. The cross of shame and condemnation that turned into the cross of glory and forgiveness. The cross where life was not lost, but rather where it was restored. As we look at Good Friday in isolation, it appears a gruesome, hopeless, despairing, desolate event. The end of a dream for many. Where were the disciples? Lost in their despair, hiding in fear for their lives. Only John seems to have stayed at his master's side, caring for Mary and the other women. Did Mary still hope for a miracle? Did she still hold out that her boy would be saved? Or did she somehow know deep within her heart and soul that with God there is no hopelessness, only a purpose? But within the wider picture of the Easter message, the events of Good Friday are just the necessary beginning, the prologue, as it were, of a new story, a new chapter in the life of mankind, a life that is now no longer only briefly played upon the world stage, but is played out for all eternity. But this afternoon we cannot look too far forward Otherwise, we gloss over the events of those three days 
as Christ suffered for us, as he battled against sin, the world and the devil. That battle doesn't sound as if it were nothing to me. It sounds as if it were everything and more. So the collect, the church's special prayer for today, Good Friday. Almighty Father, look with mercy on this your family, for which our Lord Jesus Christ was content to be betrayed and given up into the hands of sinners and to suffer death upon the cross, who is alive and glorified with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And we say together the words of the prayer that Jesus himself taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Christ the Good Shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep, draw you and all who hear his voice to be one flock within one fold. And the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son and Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you this day and always. Amen. <laughs>